Welcome back to Blacker Couch Reviews. I'm your host, Christina. We're back to discuss the much-anticipated miniseries, The Fall of the House of Usher, an American gothic horror drama created by Mike Flanagan, my boy, filmed in Vancouver and loosely based on the short story of the same name and other works by Edgar Allan Poe. The eight-episode miniseries premiered on October 12th, perfectly timed for the spooky season. But if you're a fan of Michael Flanagan or Mike Flanagan, his work, then you know that there's elements of horror, certainly, but there's usually a very layered, intriguing story line behind it so uh, he has yet to disappoint in any series that he's done thus far in my eyeballs and so I have been very eagerly looking forward to this and they have so many of my past bays and even more bays that I love in this series I'm like oh you just scooping them all up aren't you you just scooping them all up you know exactly the recipe to get me to want to come back again and again and again reading Edgar Allan Poe as a requirement in school but I did not retain anything so I have no reference other than the cryptic um, connection to the raven because the raven was probably what I read because it's the one that's coming back to me in small little spurts but that's how eighth grade goes. <laughs> the premise of this show, a CEO of a corporate, not corporate, but corrupt, kind of the same, same area. Pharmaceutical company faces his questionable past when his children start dying in mysterious and brutal ways. In directing the series, Mike Flanagan was joined by Michael Feminari. Our main cast, Carla Gugino as Verna, Bruce Greenwood, and Zach Guilford as Roderick Usher. He's also played by two other actors when they were younger, Graham Vacher and Lincoln Russo. Mary McDonald and Willa Fitzgerald as Madeline Usher. Lulu Wilson and Kate Whittington played the younger versions, Henry Thomas as Frederick Usher, Kate Siegel, my girl, as Camille, one of Roderick's illegitimate children, which is why she doesn't have the last name of Usher, but of La Espana. I don't know what that is. Rahul Kohli as Napoleon Leo Usher. Baby. I'm not going to lie. When I found out that he was kind of playing a bit of a bad boy and they showed him in the trailer, my panties got a little soaky. 
Samantha Sloyan as Tamberlyn Usher. And probably one of the best played villains in a very long time in a TV show. Tania Miller as Victorine. Michael Trucco as Rufus Griswold. Katie Parker as Annabelle Lee. Sarian Sapkota as Prospero Perry Usher. Matt Beadle as William B.T. Wilson. Not B.T., but Bill T. Crystal Belint as Morella. Ruth Codd as Juno. Kylie Curran as Lenore. Carl Lumby as C. Augustine Dupin. As well as Mark Hamill. Yes, Star Wars Mark Hamill as the Grim Reaper Arthur Pym. There is a recurring list, but if you want to get that information, you can go on wikipedia.com or imdb. And now that we've given credit where credit is due, let's get into our premiere episode, A Midnight Dreary, written and directed, of course, by Mike Flanagan himself. I gave this episode a strong 9.7 out of 10. I think the characterizations are very fresh and relatable, modernized. And we've had quite a couple of stories that have been in different time periods where you almost feel disconnected to the modern world. And this one tosses you directly into a very relevant topic and even a very nuanced and played upon trope as in the the family that lives, breathes, sweats, power, and money. While the story doesn't begin in 1980, it is a time period that is marked out for the viewer to pay attention to. Currently, we're at a funeral where three of Roderick's children are being put to rest. There's very little in attendance other than a preacher who's droning on about death. We find out Arthur Pym and his sister Madeline, Roderick's sister, Lenore, his granddaughter, says, Grampus, what's going on? When he looks towards the back of the church and sees a masked figure, he replies, she's here, being the last we see of that particular scene. The paparazzi amass outside, hinting at the notoriety of the family. Then we meet C. Augustine Dupin. This actor and Kaylee... Both were in one of my favorite movies of all time, Dr. Sleep. If you have not watched it, go find it later on. It's somewhere to be found because it is a diamond in the rough. He considers the amount of freak accidental deaths that have befallen the mini Usher elite. Before he's told that he, being Roderick, wants to meet at some unspecified address. Mark Hamill is playing Pim Reaper, 
And I love that that's his nickname. After being dropped off at an abandoned house at night, he finds Roderick in a robe before a roaring fire, sipping out of a bottle of liqueur that is ridiculously expensive. White people be like, at first, I wonder why Augie didn't ask, why are you in your night clothes in a house that doesn't look like it has <laughs> any running water or a bathroom? Did you just show up in your night clothes? But then he's probably like billionaires. This is what they do. He offers him a drink, even though he declines it. He says he's warming it up. <laughs> He tries to pretend as if he's as interested in taking a sip of this liquor for all its uselessness other than it's something rare. He does offer condolences despite clearly being on opposite sides of a moral equation and a legal one. No one should have to lose all of their children. After he waives his right to counsel, he finally takes the drink, has a seat, takes out his recorder, and is ready to talk business. I'm surprised all you didn't think that he was, he was not celebrating, but mourning in that moment because he told him, you know, this is not really worth celebrating over even though you won. Making him remark that you should be celebrating getting me on the record because you were never able to get me, let alone Madeline, who's downstairs in the basement. What do you mean by that? Maybe I have watched too much true crime. But when you tell me someone's in the basement and I don't hear anything downstairs to indicate that that person is down there in the basement, I might, you know, as a law enforcement man... Maybe he was always a lawyer. I don't know how, what the trajectory is for a district attorney. But I know I would be adhering to the red alarms going off in my head when someone casually tells me, particularly a white man in a robe, that there's someone in the basement. <laughs> because one, why would she be down there in the first fucking place? No one goes down to the basement for fun. Rarely, unless it's one of those tricked out basements. Most of us don't like going down to the basement. Even when there's a washer and dryer down there, you're just like, oh, you're going down at night, it's cold. You know, you feel just a little creeped out by it. Something about basements. He receives a message from his granddaughter, Lenore, and despite Augie saying grandkids take priority, Roderick calls him out for being just as shitty about familial values as he is for ignoring it. That is a defense mechanism, I feel, as if Roderick brought up a few times, which is that you aren't that much better of a, a parental figure or a family member. So you can't talk much shit. I'm like, there, there's a difference between ignoring your family for your job and treating your family like shit. <laughs> Putting out bounties on them. No, you are not going to at all put me in the same. I'm glad that he didn't even think to go down in the muck with him about that. It's like, sir, it's not even worth the argument. 
Roderick reveals this is his childhood home and he intends to confess to all 73 charges Augie failed to prosecute him for, including defrauding the government with a bonus. He will tell him how his children actually died and despite Augie thinking he knows the truth of it, boy does he not. 1953 to understand what Roderick has done, you must start by examining the life he and his sister Madeline grew up in and the woman that influenced them the most, which is their mother, Eliza, who was the personal secretary to the CEO of Fortunato Pharmaceuticals, William Longfellow, who loved the idea of whipping children like beefsteaks because the more you do, the tenderer they become. What the fuck is wrong with you? He's also banging his secretary and now has two bastard children by her that he keeps down the street close enough so that they can see what they are denied, (laughs) but far enough away that they won't cause him problems. If you tell a kid not to do something, though, you can bet your ass they are going to do it. As Roderick gets busted, being spurred on by Madeline, the trouble, the trouble starter, trying to get over Longfellow's fence, attracting his attention and that of his wife, confirming suspicions. In my mind, that William is indeed having an affair. It's also unusual in that time period still for a woman to be have her two children unless she's a widow and her husband is known but they didn't seem to reference any father figure his wife came out and was like oh is those eliza's kids what's she doing around here you live in this neighborhood (laughs) girl don't lie to yourself you know exactly kids looking just like they damn daddy Madeline clearly is resentful. She knows exactly what is going on. And the look that she gave him. You can't get rid of me, bitch. I'm not going nowhere. I'm not going no fucking where. Later on, she tells her mom he's mean. Needs to keep his hands to himself. He's complicated, like God. Okay. I need to use that line at some point in the near future because it was hysterical (laughs) i'm not even gonna say it about a person i'm like it's complicated like god pain and suffering are also like the kiss of jesus so of course jesus kissed the fuck out of his mother in the years that followed which is quite the uh analogy to be making Flanagan talked a lot about suffering in Midnight Mass. A lot of monologues about it that were very detailed and nuanced and interesting, if a bit breathy and long. But the idea that you must suffer is is a theme within Christianity and that she is a woman stating and following christianity teachings if you read a lot of the bible you also know that females what their consideration is 
to the suffering of mankind is minimal. <laughs> like they're at the bottom of the barrel right down there with the Jews. 1962, mom is suffering in the physical variety. Do you think that she had like a tumor or some other type of abdominal obstruction? Her children want to call the doctor, but her religious fanaticism doesn't allow it. Saying that our bodies are our temple. God gave us natural healing abilities without the benefit of modern medicine and considering the field that they find themselves being the heirs to or the company i think there's some irony there but there is also the idea that she lost faith in that system possibly due to the fact that she works for a pharmaceutical system and thinks that if faith can't hear me heal me then nothing will and there there might be something else to that or i could be reading much more into that than it was implied on one hand i understand dying committed to your own faith and belief but i also couldn't help but feel a little bit like she was selfish by not doing something that would assault her children and their own state of anxiety just by even having her checked out but resolution is something that's brought up in this episode as well so on one hand she was committed to what she believed on the other hand (laughs) is it better to die and could have been saved so that you could be there for your children so that they didn't have to grow up in a world without you and without your guidance due to your own convictions her poor children have to deal with her concern and temperament they think it's time to go see him madeline coaches roderick on how to convince their father to help by making it feel as if it was his idea she's very astute for her age this doesn't go well though no matter how practiced their speech is and it's sad that she will listen the mother they believe will listen to william because did she not equate him to god and not adhere to the desires of her own children which is what i was referencing earlier for his part he drunkenly tells them to take their insinuations and grift off of his lawn The wife continues to be oblivious, but no woman is that dumb, even if they don't want to tell anyone, which is also what I think I referenced earlier. That's what happens when you don't follow your notes, as one should. Eliza dies, and the kids, knowing mom would want to be embalmed, would not want to be embalmed, and loving her as they did, they decide to create a coffin from the shed and bury her in the backyard. Later on at night, a storm wakes Roderick. I get y'all is scared, but you got too many parts to be in the same bed. But I suppose they're twins. So they've been used to being this close for a very long time. During a storm, they wake 
to find that mom has crawled from her grave. They're confused, believing that they accidentally buried her alive and plead for understanding. After hearing mommy, because she went right after Roderick. I wonder if there's some type of correlation there. Because Roderick makes a comment talking to Augie about how he raised his children and it had everything to do with his father. So could in that moment his mother see what he would become? After she hears her daughter's plea is when she relents and leaves. So they follow the woman who appears to be resurrected because she was dead. They, they, I, mean, I don't know how you could possibly be in that much of a coma, not breathing. She walks to the Longfellow house where William comes out to my who there? What the fuck? And is strangled to death in his driveway. I'm just the crazy slut with a dead husband. <laughs> I did laugh heavily when they pan back to Augie because that is not a story that you're expecting to hear. Like, yo, your mother killed your father? That's <laughs> what you're telling me? The official version is the man died of a heart attack in his sleep to protect the Usher line from the scandal, but ultimately their mother's last act was to kill a powerful corrupt man and they loved her evermore for it never mind that that was your daddy and it was murder and while he was an asshole i don't know <laughs> if that uh, is a justification augie wonders why he's bringing up his mom and when he tells him she's standing behind him, he doesn't act predictably and look behind because he believes it's a negotiation tactic being deployed to disarm his opponent, his opponent being Augie himself. But we see the shadowy figure in the background turn around and leave. Roderick reflects that this ties into how his own children died, how he treated them, and why they were the way they were because of his dad i'm still trying to find the the through line there i need more context roderick promised he would never be what his father was he had six children by five different baby mamas it's a lot of more reaction you are the father this is another moment of justification for him saying i always promised i would never be like him i would never close the gates on my children no matter what they did but clearly something has gone awry augie points out that the relationship only goes so far because you're not answering the text from your granddaughter and he says at some point kids will stop reaching out if you don't do your part in the relationship which i do think is important because there's so many adults right now waiting for children to give them a call and i'm like you know that the phone works two ways i haven't called my grandma at all in like 
two, three years. I've seen her in those two or three years, a couple of times at my aunt's house. But when my mom's like, oh, you should call her. I'm like, yeah, she's never once called me. Anytime we've ever had an interaction, I've called her. So maybe if she can reach out, then I'll be prompted to do the same. Otherwise, why am I the one uh, <laughs> lifting up something that doesn't exist? Once again, Roderick deflects by pointing out that Augie's kids and grandkids are at his home and he is here with him. Even at the indictment or the trial, the biggest triumph of his life, his husband wasn't there. I agree with Augie though. I don't want you anywhere near this type of stank. I wouldn't want any of my family near this type of stank. It's catching even from a distance. Despite his children being indicted as co-conspirators, that day in court was the last time all of them were together alive, which is depressing. Two weeks ago, the U.S. government against Fortunato Pharmaceuticals and the Usher family, due to their products being unsafe and effective, contributing to the rising opiate epidemic which very much is a rising concern unlike other hard drugs like meth these opiates are are in suburban housewives cabinets not just housewives but you know what i mean they're far more accessible because they're so easily written by doctors nowadays especially if you're in a certain demographic because Lord knows my mom really be in pain and she can't get no painkillers. <laughs> Not all like that. No, no, she cannot. Uh-uh. So it is definitely what kind of insurance you have. You have and she ain't got the good kind where the doctor's like, well, what do you need? I'm here for you. Now, if I go to my doctor. <laughs> There's probably an increased chance that I'll be written a, a prescription for some narcotics or opiates. Actually, I have to go tomorrow because of some back pain that I've been having. And I don't want to be in my Jamaican trip, you know, barely able to get out of the bed. But I'm also not going to ask. I'm like, dude, don't give me, just give me some muscle relaxers for a couple of weeks. That's all I need. No, I don't want no, 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 uh, I don't want your shit. You're not about to, yeah, because the pharmaceutical companies are very much the, <laughs> the drug pushers of America. But they've also been engaging in misleading marketing practices and a whole other slew of crimes that have brought them to the court today, defended by their attorney, Pem. It's also not a good idea to prescribe children. Like the way in which medication is way too easily given to children. I do mean 18, 19. You know, we all go through a little anxiety. No one is the problem and you just need to have a conversation. And then always with the drugs, they're meant to be a combination of that and therapy. And people just go to the drug part and skip the therapy. Lenore and her mom are sitting away from the family but I thought she was on the other side of the courtroom. 
But I suppose there's only so much room on that bench to sit next to her husband. Because I thought they were not even together. Like, that must be one of his baby mamas. She uh, seems to be assured by her mom. Augie is passionate about all the D words he can find to condemn the family. To Roderick's amusement, he did bring up that his opening argument was one of the best he's seen. Defraud, destroys, defiles, degrades. He started bringing the church rhetoric up in there when he started cursing them out. But things take a turn when Augie announces, unlike the previous 40 years of get out of jail free cars, this family clearly has gotten since not even a parking ticket, a speeding. Come on, we all get one. This time they have evidence and testimony given from the inside. Someone is snitching and it comes as a surprise to the family. He's right though. The fight against the 2% is the lengthiest, most obnoxious process in the justice system. And even if they're convicted, the most uh, get lenient sentences, 20 years of house arrest suspended. Like what the fuck? Despite the high level of crimes or the high level of deaths, you know, I've been watching a lot of, you know, not true crimes, but negligence, negligence with like building projects and so on and so forth. And yeah, like a lot of people will die and the people that were completely uh, complicit in why they died are given four years five years in prison so i'm not even following this this stump stuff because it's like okay what's the most we're gonna get out of this not not what we want i mean i'm not saying i ain't gonna settle a (laughs) settle for a conviction (laughs) or celebrate it but it's not going to be in any way in proportion with the level they deserve and that's only if you get them to the courtroom that's hard enough it takes about four to seven years not the attorney was doing a crossword puzzle during opening statements (laughs) they approached the bench with Pam upset that they haven't been advised of an informant which is something that is mandatory or statutory but because the informant actually fears for their life even called Pim their fixer, so to speak, enforcer. Uh, the safety ends up trumping having the person's identity revealed, even though the judge says, well, you shouldn't have brought it up in your opening <laughs> argument then. <laughs> Augie blames it on his age, but he knew he set that bomb off on purpose. I do wonder when Augie said, I think this court is compromised and the judge gave that look if he was talking about him. At a conference outside the press conference outside the courtroom, we find out that 54 to 55,000 people have died due to the pharmaceutical company's negligence. And Augie, he just wants the families like or families like the ushers to take responsibility meanwhile pim 
It's looking at him like he's considering on how he can effectively take him off the board. I'm going to murder you. I'm going to come into your house one night while you're asleep. I'm going to cut your throat. This isn't a joke. You're going to die. I feel as if you get to the position of assistant attorney general, you're definitely not going to be a guy people like Penn would find dirt on. Because you've been vetted. You're in one of the most moralistic, self-righteous places in the government there can be. I'm sorry, but wouldn't you automatically think if I was in that courtroom, it's got to be the one that's, if I'm looking for the snitch, it's the one that's not sitting next to us on our side. Because <laughs> it kind of looked like Moraine and her mother were sitting on the defense side or is the prosecuting side. Yeah, the prosecuting side of the courtroom. Roderick wants to interrogate the family over family dinner. So tells Pim to to get all the kids to come with their spouses. Poor Perry. He's the first one thrown under the bus by Frederick, who has a bowling alley in his living room and doesn't know what the difference is between a mole and an informant because all of his references for real life come from the departed. <laughs> what really stood out to me in this scene is that his daughter is consistently on her phone and none of the parents, one, think to ask what she's doing or two, know what she's doing. Or three, investigate to find out later. And I think that that is a telling problem with society as a whole. Well, parenting and society as a whole is that they're hella uninformed. Even when the evidence is right in front of them to ask questions. She believes that the facts aren't true. There's nothing to worry about. But if they are, shouldn't the guilty person be punished? And her mom says, yeah, if you want to be written out of the will. She also thinks that whoever is talking to the feds must be brave. It's gonna be me. There's a scene later on that confirms my personal theory that Lenora is the actual snitch. Because she is someone no one would consider a threat because she is a child. Which means that when you give her a non-disclosure agreement, that shit's not legal. Tamberlin and her husband, Bill, Frederick's sister, believes it's one of the bastards, <laughs> as she calls them. Because her inept brother, Roderick, no, Frederick. Frederick? Yeah, Frederick would never do anything to piss off his dad or threaten his place. Next in line and lands on Perry, too. Juno dad's new wife who also is not to be acknowledged in her presence is not a suspect because she simply doesn't know anything tammy is preparing to launch gold bugs something she is doing to get daddy's approval despite how much he will only favor the useless elder son this launch is what she needs to prove that the usher family or empire should be a matriarchy Bill, the guy in sweatpants, laugh if you get the reference, asks what she needs, and it's mostly his 10 million subscribers from Built Nation, as he's clearly an online fitness guru, and I'm just like, yeah, that's a thing. Someone needs to tell you to stop 
eating, put the fucking fork down and go for a walk. Speaking of fucking, I canceled the girl tonight. Blue face, baby. Yeah, yeah, I. He didn't even know about this girl, so what is she into? Victorine is working on a brand new type of technology to insert into the heart. Poor monkeys. Poor, poor monkeys. But unfortunately, her father's nightshade powder isn't going to get their trial past the peer reviews, seeing as it's a deadly toxin and all and associated with paralyzing people. But Victorine is confident inviting her partner, Dr. Ruiz, to come and bring Al. Who was Al? I know the actress from Resident Evil, the series. She too thinks that Camille is the snitch, but I think that they just don't like each other. Then we move to my baby daddy. Plays Napoleon Leo Usher. He a whole ass snack and he knows it. But also a fuckboy seeing as he's playing video games while getting a blowjob talking to his live-in boyfriend on the phone about how he can't meet his family. He then tells his fan to hide on the balcony while he distracts his boo in the bedroom discussing what he saw on the news until he can let her out. Of course she's over there filming like all my friends will be so stoked when they find out I gave you a blowjob like that should not be your life goals. If those are your life goals you need to evaluate yourself in the mirror. Camille the PR guru assigns family members to which press spots they're going to do definitely not Anderson. I'm not understanding why people like Victorine and less keen on Juno who was scraped off the emergency room floor <laughs> to marry a man old enough to be her grandfather. And that never will not be weird. And I, I got to say, yeah, you're right there. You are right there. <laughs> Chris Evans getting side-eyed so much right now. Like there's a whole new level of mm, disconnecting because if I have to wonder how old you are, that means they're too fucking young. <laughs> and this is a trend. And this is a trend. Y'all do it. You know why you do it. And when it happens, yeah, you don't give a fuck. Of course, you don't give a fuck. But the rest, some of, some of us out there be all shocked. But I never allow myself to ever be shocked. Ever be shocked. She too thinks Perry doesn't think he is clever enough to keep it a secret from TikTok. Um, oh wait, she said she doesn't think it's him. If there is an informant, Camille wants to be the one to find them and present their frozen head to their father on a platinum plate. Clearly seeing the theme here, which is daddy's approval. Juno, his new bride, is very nervous about meeting the family she doesn't want to look them in the eye she knows that they hate her but roderick knows they fear getting cut out of the will more his doctor don shows up with news you never hear what is spoken but it's never a good thing when your doctor comes house a calling prospero perry comes up with an unoppressive business venture, which is essentially 
exclusive nightclubs named after himself. He presents this business venture to both his aunt and uncle, Roderick and Madeline, who shuts him down hard as the Usher name is about changing the world and not exclusive blowjobs. So you get nothing. You lose. Good day, sir. I love that people think that that's a career. Like, I'll be famous for being famous. <laughs> and it works out for them. That's the fucked up part. But you do need to have your billionaire and uncles support that. And they do not want to give his first loan to uh, to something so stupid. They can't even pretend to care. And he had a year to come up with this idea too. Madeline doesn't think he's the informant, but knows she'll be able to tell once they pass out the paperwork. I think they got him pegged right though. He's not someone who's going to keep a secret. <laughs> no matter how much they make him feel less like a man. She knows something's going on with her brother, but he dismisses it. The sight of that woman scared the shit out of me. And there was two jump scares. This one was mild. The second one was heart attack level. And that was not okay. The music in the overhead shot was appropriately chosen. And taking the piss out of the is it cake gimmick was chef's kiss. <laughs> Lenore's mom gives you something that looks like a cup and a a law book and then you cut into one and it's cake why do you think cutting into the 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 cup was going to be even more impressive and he completely she missed the the drag like oh if you were doing cakes then you would have not been <laughs> taken off air you'd still have a career on tv <laughs> Roderick is praised for choosing a genius for a wife with Tammy disgusted by his display of ass lickery. Madeline hands out the new non-disclosure agreements. Well, Pim does at Madeline's request. Something everyone must sign. And <laughs> you definitely are not going to get your attorney to look over things first. Bill said to Al, your first time. The funniest part. <laughs> Of this whole scene. Not that it was meant to be a comedy. <laughs> it's when Camille's like, speaking of prenups, how's things going, Juno? I hate it here. I want to go home. Victorine and Camille exchange uh, blame on each other for being the informant. Roderick says, no, no fighting at the table. It's uncouth. I'll sign in blood if I have to. <laughs> it means I stay in this will and I will not be out on the street. How do you spell Froderick? Madeline doesn't find it amusing. The company is the family and she's very much upset that any one of her blood would talk to the feds. And if a threat comes for them, it will be neutralized like in sued, like in dead. Going to the government is kind of playing into her mother's distrust of the police and law enforcement in general. 
Roderick then announces $50 million tax-free to the one who finds out who's the snitch. So a bounty on the informant. Happy hunting. That was the last words he said to some of his children uh, because he never saw them alive again. Presently, Augie demurs from being responsible saying, look, I may have throw that bomb in there, but I'm not responsible for the damage it caused. (laughs) But Roderick takes full blame for what happened to his children. And despite what the evidence says, it was him and a woman that he has to tell him about that caused all of this. The woman from his nightmares, it would seem, and is known to Madeline. He says resolution, which is a full commitment to do something or not. It's not something many people grasp the full meaning of. And that was the first time I wondered, did he kill his kids? But not him and Madeline, which leads to our flashback 1980, New Year's Eve 1979. Madeline and Roderick go to a newly opened establishment to toast the new year with barmaid Verna, who sees that they've already been up to some trouble this night after a costume party. Roderick is concerned about being caught, but Madeline, the voice of reason and the one I always feel is in charge, tells him this is the perfect place to alibi themselves. Verna tells them as if she wasn't eavesdropping that resolutions are all about making deals with the future he's flirting with the devil roderick declares they know what their new year's resolution is they want to change the future something he also wants his children to do augie knows it's the night everything changed for the company fortunato amidst many whispers and mystery and he wants to tell him the true tale In the past, Verna has the two twins no longer at the bar, but at a bar or at a table nearby, caught up in the grasp of whatever she's talking about their future bringing and that they are outside of time and space. Currently, Roderick tells Augie each piece, as unbelievable as it is, has importance in the story of how his six children, three in one week, three in the next week, died six coffins he had to place in the dirt at the funeral it wasn't just her there but his dead children we get the flashback to that moment as the preacher was talking about the gruesome torturous images of death and dude that joker shit in the car that's what absolutely scared the daylights out of me (laughs) that That was what took me out. And then he falls backwards with the camera snapping unempathetically. Staring up at a raven, his sister calls for him to be taken to a hospital. Which now explains the pajamas. There's always a rhyme, always a reason. But he says it's time. This is the end. Beautiful friend. This is the end, my only friend, the end. 
Really like the imagery of the ending of this episode. I think I said I gave it a 9.7 out of 10, but if I have not, there is our score. I can't wait to get to the rest of the episodes in the series. I'm probably going to get through this a lot quicker than some other series that I've been kind of taking my time on. Just because, A, I don't have to wait for feedback because I know none of my girls are going to be watching this. And two, I'm highly, highly into seeing how this story plays out. So if you want to send feedback, blackercouch at gmail.com. My social media will be below. You can like, share, and subscribe and send feedback in written or audio format. My apologies for um, all of my tripping over myself and a little bit of the erraticness of the podcast. I didn't get that much sleep last night due to a tween sleepover. So the struggle is real. Thanks for stopping. Bye. Until next time. Peace. Hair grease and black girl magic.